Hi, this is Shirley Halper, an executive editor of Variety. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From music business worldwide, about that catalog music stat we published the other day. <laughs> for media, major label revenue surged in 2021, but what does that mean? From Billboard, Lucian Grange's memo to UMG staff, big hits, good deeds, and embracing change. And from Media, how relevant are awards in this age of Spotify wrapped? Wow, that is a good question. And these and many other questions will be answered on this episode number 75 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Sit down, kick back, because here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Here we go indeed, Jay. How are you? How about that intro? That was pretty cool. Oh, Shirley. We love Shirley. That's yeah, awesome. I, I've loved her work. And, you know, I had the pleasure of having lunch with her a week ago or so. And what a what a wonderful uh, person she is. And, you know, she she has a podcast and Variety has a podcast that's uh, that's super cool. It's called Strictly Business. And mm-hmm. um, I featured it, at least a story about it and the podcast in Your Morning Coffee last week. And the headline was highly recommend variety. Oh, no, that's not the headline. The headline, that's me talking. The headline is, <laughs> As Splice Sounds Populate Hit Songs by Dua Lipa, Doja Cat, and Justin Bieber. CEO Steve Martosi breaks down its DNA. So that's the title of the story. And uh, it comes with the podcast, that uh, the Strictly Business podcast interview that she did. And it's really, really great. I highly encourage people to check it out. Um, and they they talk about Splice. I know you're familiar with Splice. Yes, I am. Well, and it's if, if you haven't heard of it, this is kind of the latest. And now, there's been other things similar before, but this is enormous at the moment. It's an online music marketplace for a monthly fee. Uh, a creator can acquire the parts that make up music. So you're talking loops. Uh, one-shots for uh, or specific drum beats that can be used and manipulated, different instruments and sounds, both synthetic and analog, and use them fully licensed and royalty-free. Ah, royalty-free. Uh, they go yes, on to say, uh, you know, with 2 million sounds and 4 million users, 
Splice has become the go-to uh, for hit makers and novices alike. Uh, the DNA can be heard on songs by some of the most popular artists today. I'm, like I mentioned, Dua Lipa, Justin Bieber, Doja Cat, Bad Bunny, and even, as rumor has it, Adele. Mm. Rumor has it. Nice. That was a nice, uh, <laughs> nice little segue the way you did that, Jay. I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's worth pointing out that these these similar things, and and you know, you you can go online and find all kinds of MIDI packs and all kinds of things that basically make the job of songwriting much easier. Shall we say that? And even in GarageBand, you know, which has a great loops and great drum samples and great chord progression, you know, it's. There's so many tools out there, but this really is is so hot at the moment, yeah. and so many people are using it. It's yeah, I've been big. meaning to sign up and give it a give it a spin yeah, myself. I'm you, curious. you really should, and and for those of our listeners, um, you should go in and uh, check out Splice. But if you want to learn more about it, check out your morning coffee. The story um, that I just mentioned uh, talks about Variety's uh, strictly business podcast. Um, highly recommended. It. It's in heavy rotation on my morning walks. Yes, indeed. And by the way, the guy that is talking this very second, or was talking that very second, he's Jay Gilbert. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which you must know is weekly music news for the new music business. And he's a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups and Fox Home Entertainment. And that's the only ones I know off the top of my head. (laughs) That's enough. And the gentleman sitting across from me is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. That's a lot. You've been a busy guy. (laughs) And that's actually a short list. Yeah. (laughs) Because I was actually speaking with a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about you know, all of the, the, the layoffs and being fired and just, you know, the volatility of, of working in the music business over the years. And it was volatile, you yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. it, it's, uh, it was crazy. I, the, the, I think I might've mentioned on the air before, my, the most volatile thing I ever did was I went to work for this division of EMI, which was called EPROP. I started sure. on Friday the 13th, March 13th, Friday the 13th. And on, Mar- and on March 30th, they closed it down. <laughs> Wow. I was there for two weeks. <laughs> wow. You know, there's a documentary coming out soon uh, on John Waite, and they mm-hmm. actually licensed some of my photos for it, so I'm pretty excited about it. But his career is full of those types of moments where he gets signed yeah. by a label, has a, delivers an amazing album, and then the label goes out of business. So that'll be a real interesting uh, um, documentary that's coming up. And, uh, you know, when when it comes to looking at our careers, um, like I worked at Universal for 18 years, but not straight. Like I worked for a while and then I left and I worked for Sony Music Group. Um, I worked with Sanctuary Records uh, for, it wasn't a long time, but I really enjoyed it. That's yeah, That was, I think, for about a year. I worked with Tom Lipsky and, you know, so my boss's boss was Merck, Mercury Otis, you know, of mm-hmm. hypnosis fame. And it was really cool because it was a record label it was a music publishing, book publishing, artist management, and producer management company. And it was really interesting working and seeing how all of uh, those different sausages were made. Oh, absolutely. So actually, having spent that much time at one music company is is to be applauded, because that's hard to do. The longest I was ever at a company was eight years, both for Warner Music and... But even within my Warner Music career, I was at different... You know, I was at Warner Brothers Records, then I was at Giant Records, then I was at Deaf American, then Warner Active. So, 
you know. And me too. You know, that's how that works. You know, when I was at Universal, Mm -hmm. in those 18 years, I probably, you know, changed positions or divisions every three or four years. That's how you do it. And um, I was very fortunate to come in and work with some very, very smart people you know, the Albie Galutens of the world and the Bob mm-hmm. Schneiders of the world and Jim Uries and people like that. So I had a lot of great mentors and, and a lot of great years there. Um, before we get going here, let's uh, thank our sponsors. First, uh, uh, you know, your morning coffee is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it so easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All of the features that you would need are Everything is built in, hosting, a custom domain name, dozens of uh, customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and your merch commission-free, that's key, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan mailing list and send newsletters, social media integrations and live support from their musician-friendly team, sorry I can't speak tonight, Uh, seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to Banzoogle.com. Try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and that'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. You betcha. We are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis. HypeBot and sister blog uh, Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Ah, Bands in Town. Over 65 million live music fans, they trust Bands in Town to get them personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages uh, from their favorite artists the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans managers labels agencies artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms I think the reason I'm stumbling a little bit here is we're recording this it late on a Friday afternoon which we don't typically do right we typically <laughs> record correct. in the mornings you know where you're looking yes, all I know bleary-eyed and I'm all mm-hmm. bushy-tailed you know drinking coffee and um, so this is different it's dark outside and that is rare for you and I to see each other you know it's like right vampires yes. or something oh I know it it is weird but it's uh you know we do what we do we we've <laughs> We, we sneak it in when we can sneak it in. That's so, right. Absolutely. Yeah, we had uh, some uh, scheduling things this weekend, so we decided we'll just do it now. And There uh, you go. And Exactly. And and there you go. And big thanks, by the way, to Banzoogle, to HypeBot, and Bands in Town. We certainly appreciate yes, their we support. Do. Their unwavering support, shall yes. we say. And uh, it's fabulous, and we sure appreciate it. So, yeah. well, let's jump into it. Sure, uh, let's do it. You know, uh, in, in uh, I'm not a golfer. No. But, but in golf, there is this thing called a mulligan, yes, which is kind of a, a do-over. Yeah. And so our first story is from Music Business Worldwide, and the title is, Hey, <laughs> about that catalog music stat we published the other day? <laughs> dot, 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 dot. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's uh, people make mistakes. Well, and to be fair, it wasn't there. Music Business Worldwide. It was not? No, absolutely. Uh, mistake. Right. This was a, a little blip from MRC's report that they were drawing their analysis from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was great. I think you have to, if there's a mistake, I think it it's really important to do the retraction or to come back and explain, yeah. um, because there were some people kind of questioning that number a little bit. And again, it's not Music Business Worldwide's fault. You know, we love those guys. Um, 
Tim Ingham and his crew over there, some of the best in the business. And speaking of podcasts, that Music Business Worldwide podcast that they do, I, oh. I listen to every episode. It's just absolutely, yeah. I mean, Tim Ingham's like a robot. Like he never makes a mistake. You know, it, I don't know if it's in the edits or if he's just that good. He's probably just that, that good. <laughs> he's probably um, that good, yeah. But, you know, he's like Spock with a British accent. The guy's just brilliant. <laughs> you know, he's like my hero. <laughs> And and so the number that we're talking about, you know, as as we said, and last week, MR, uh, Music Business Worldwide published that what they're calling a jaw dropping statistic about the U.S. music market in 2021, and that number that we were talking about as well is 82.1 percent of music consumption in the second half of the year. They and we calculated, uh, Tim saying this was of catalog music as opposed to current music. Yeah, and uh, in fact, the the, the the number was not correct. So it, what MRC has now swung back yeah. around and yeah, said they've that corrected their report. So when you go to download exactly. it, which we did, um, you, if you download it again, you'll get the correct numbers. Yes, exactly. So now we're the, the corrected number is 70. Well, hold on. Uh, uh, uh now there's, there's too many things. So it was 74.5% and now it's 69.8% share of the annual U.S. That's right. music That's right. market in 2021. Still Which is a still huge. Number. That's almost Absolutely. 70% of the U.S. market is catalog. Now you would think from listening to, you know, Adele and, you know, Megan Thee Stallion and Doja Cat, I'm, I'm, Justin Bieber, all this stuff, you think, wow, this has got to be a majority of the business. No, it's not so, uh, not so. It's a catalog world out there, and uh, yeah, I mean, this isn't really that big of a a deal, you know, when you think about it. Um, but it's it's still about seventy percent of the business, and if you mm -hmm. if you look down, they've readjusted some of these, you know, charts. Um, and this is in your morning coffee, since we we don't have the visuals in front of us, but. A lot of the conversations I've been having lately are about catalog. Now, there's the obvious things, you know, the KKRs and hypnosis and BMGs of the world that are, you know, buying up catalogs. And, you know, we talk about that weekly on this show. Um, but it's also one of those areas that people are trying to figure out. You know, when you talk to the folks, the fine folks over at the major and major indie distributors, they're trying to figure out a way... How can we exploit, and I mean that in the best possible way, how do we mm -hmm. exploit catalog? And I was listening to the Music Ally podcast, which is really good. That's another good podcast if you like music business podcasts. And they had um, Eamon Ford on, who we were just talking mm -hmm. about, that great right. story That's he right. wrote about those things that the music industry needs to get rid of. So he Absolutely. was a guest on there, and they do this downloadable PDF, this is called the sandbox that you can get. Um, and it was in your morning coffee as well, but they go through all of these different marketing, um, initiatives, um, in the UK primarily. And, and what they were doing on the last episode of the, um, music ally podcast was they're kind of going through and reviewing their favorite ones. And Eamon was talking about, um, one of his favorite bands, Def Leppard. And how they created kind of this online museum and all these cool things. And that is something that's rare, where you see people who are doing some really cool, creative um, things uh, for catalog. And I think in the coming months, you're going to see more and more emphasis placed on catalog music. It, Like we just said, if, if it's in the U.S., if it's 70% of what's being listened to, 
you know, what are some ways that you can get people to discover catalog? Because let's face it, our focus group of our kids, you know, they're discovering Queen. They're discovering Bob mm-hmm. Marley and John Coltrane, right? So I think it's going to be really exciting to see how that goes this year. What I would love to see is a breakdown of that this now new number, call it 70%. What percentage of that is records that were released, released, let's say, in the last five years versus... I mean, I really would love to see a little bit more detailed breakdown of what what makes up those catalog numbers. I think I can pull some of that from, you know, because I subscribe to MRC, to their data. Mm -hmm. And to your point, they think of catalog as something 18 months are old. Right. That's 18 months. To me, that's pretty new. That's, you know, that's that's pretty new. That's that's, that's my not point, the Beatles exactly. or yeah. Queen. No, exactly. And and I think you know in, when we were when we both worked in catalog at different times, you know, you you one of the things you do is you play off and you you piggyback onto uh, if that artist is still current on on their latest album. So you know if if a if a if the Justin Bieber album the 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 second newest one is selling well off the back of the first one. Well, that's that certainly is catalog, but that's a little different than a Queen record being Now, being there is to. one caveat here. I remember um, working with the majors, and they had this thing called carryover. Remember carryover? Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that sometimes could be um, a release that was out of its release cycle but still selling well. And so I don't know how they balance the books when something's still selling really well 18 months later, like... Right. Adele or Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, but I think that's your question. I think is a good one. To, it would be really interesting to kind of dig into catalog and is this mainly stuff that's in the last few years, or uh, if you look at the report and they they list the top five, uh, you know, the number one was Queen. Um, yeah. But I believe there were two Morgan Wallen records in that top five as well. It's in the report. We'll dig back into that. But And, uh, and just to me, 18 months seems not far enough back. Uh, and, and maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe nobody else thinks that. But to me, it's it, and the number might be more like five years to me because... Yeah. Um, then again, you're a troublemaker. I am, and I'm old. <laughs> so the, the combination of the two really makes me say things like that. Who knows, you know? But it, it, to me, 18 months is, is still, you know, a, a hot record is still selling in 18 months after release. And and yes, does it suddenly become catalog? It doesn't, yeah. doesn't feel right to me. I would I would argue that 18 months, a new release is not selling. It's out of its, unless it's something rare, like a, you know, an Adele or something mm-hmm. huge. A year and a half later, no, you're, you're done. I mean, a lot of records, and I, I sound old saying record, but that release cycle... When you hit release date, you've got this natural decay curve, right? You've got your first two weeks that you're watching very carefully, and there's a certain drop-off mm-hmm. depending on the genre. And then, you know, you're four or five weeks out, you're done and you're moving on to something else unless there's tour support or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of look at those numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Because to me, Queen and the last Justin Bieber album just before his most recent one shouldn't be mentioned in the same in the Fair. same catalog discussion to me those are way way different we used to call it deep catalog um, I don't know how they um, designate that but I agree with you I think that 
you know, something that's still viable and, you know, uh, the artist is still, you know, current, maybe even on the charts, there should be some other kind of designation for that. But you're right. Um, I, I don't disagree with that. They're, they're, they seem to be too, you know, you're like, you're comparing apples and chainsaws. <laughs> <laughs> which I do frequently anyway. Who doesn't? Uh, as the owner of both uh, an Apple and a chainsaw. Uh, <laughs> I, and I, own, so, I own neither. So. You own neither. Well, well you can I borrow my Apple, apples or my chainsaws. Apple computer, maybe. Oh, there you go. And okay. I have many Apple computers. <laughs> All right, let's jump over to the next article, Jay. It's from Media. Major label revenue surged in 2021. But what does that mean? Yeah, Up by $4.4 billion. That's a big It's not nothing. Well, and this was written, for those who don't follow Midia, you should. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And we're actually going to cover two stories this week uh, from Midia. Uh, the other from my friend uh, Keith Jopling, who also does a song sommelier um, uh, playlist, by the way. But I yeah, digress. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, this piece was written by Mark Mulligan, um, who's absolutely fantastic. And I read everything that he uh, he writes. He's got a little bit of snark and some of his uh, writing which i appreciate you know i appreciate that the chris castles of the world and and that sort of thing we, we, we both like that absolutely yeah you know and he uses uh he uses big words um which just like Eamon ford did you know we have to get our yes we have to get our dictionaries out and, thesaurus out yeah absolutely yeah, and read some of this well stuff. let's Go ahead. So of course, so we're we're talking some big numbers, uh, as he uh, kind of says. Uh, if the fourth quarter uh, majors earnings follow similar seasonality patterns to previous years, collective major label recorded music revenue will be up by twenty nine percent in twenty twenty one, reaching nineteen point six billion dollars. Wow. Uh, he says a more bearish estimate is nineteen point three billion. Uh, by way of comparison, twenty twenty growth was six percent. And 2019 was 10%. So, another way. so just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, just to of course. put a fine point on that, 29% in 2021 mm -hmm. compared to the previous year, 6%. 6% and 10% before that. Yeah, sorry. And he said, ahead. to put it another way, major label revenue increased by $787 million in 2020. And in 2021, it was up by 4.4 billion. What? 2021 was a red letter year for the major labels, but was it a one-off or an industry pivot point? I love that. And that yes. that's the key, right? He says predictably streaming was the core driver of most of the major label revenue in 2021, accounting for 67% of the revenue, and that was up 31%. Uh, these are just crazy numbers. You know, 2020 streaming growth was up 18%. That's crazy, um, just in one year, those kinds of jumps. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he says that, that that level of annual streaming growth has not been seen since 2016. 2020 streaming growth was 18%. Um, but streaming's leading player, Spotify, did see that kind of growth. Spotify's full year 2021 revenues look set to hit uh, 9.6 billion euros, which would be up by 22% by 2020. And if we only consider premium growth, i.e. the part that is not boosted by podcast revenue, uh, then growth was just 19%. So the industry is overperforming Spotify, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. Very interesting. And he says that it's not as if Spotify is losing much ground in the global streaming market. Its subscriber growth was largely in line with the global market average, excluding China. So the majors grew streaming faster somewhere beyond Spotify. 
That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Very interesting, actually. Yeah, it really is. They look at the growth, you know, U.S. 27.1% growth, you know, the first half, according to the RIAA. Japan, actually Japan was like down 1%, which is, Mm -hmm. now remember, Japan has a lot of local repertoire that we talked about in the last episode and also a lot more physical, right? They're one of the fastest growing in the streaming side. And, um, but again- that's uh, January through November, and so these numbers are going to change. UK up almost 9%. But here's the part that I thought was really interesting, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts on some of these. Um, Mark says, all of this means that the additional major label growth is likely reflective of factors such as large one-off payments you know, f- by the likes of ByteDance, Twitch, and Facebook, Okay. Mm-hmm. And okay. we all know that there's all these different revenue streams like Peloton and these things where the music business is making money, maybe where they didn't before or they didn't make that level before. Um, right. Number two, uh, licensing income um, from these same parties. Number three, increased contribution from other markets. Number four, market share increase from catalog acquisitions. That's key. You know, when we talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the hypnosis of the world and things like that. Sure. Um, revenue growth from major distributed independents. Now, you know, I learned the other day, like Disney Music, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a an independent. It's a major distributed independent. And you think yeah. because they're so big and they have, you know, Hollywood and they have Queen and they have, you know, Breaking Benjamin and then all that great Disney stuff. You just think of them as a major. At least I did. But I do, too. Absolutely. But, but they are that. So uh, super interesting here. And I would, and I would say, because you know, in the old days and in, in our early days in the music business, I, you know, and and I started an independent label, which meant it was independent distribution. So if you were, if you had major label distribution, you were kind of a. In fact, I think they were major indies was the the, the phrase we used to use. So, I do. I'm with you on that. I t- to me, Disney Records and Hollywood Records. Uh, well, the I reason they call them an indie is because they're not owned. They're distributed, right? right? And when you say major indies, I think of In Grooves, The Orchard, ADA. You know, to me, those are what we call major indies. Um, or because they're indie labels, they don't own these labels. Like when you're, uh, you know, Atlantic or Republic or something like that, you know, then Warner Music Group owns those labels. But if you're, you know, Beggars Merge Sub Pop through ADA, let's say, then you know, you're distributed, you're not owned. It's a different thing. But we're, yeah, but we're but kind I, of splitting hairs a little bit. <laughs> well, and I think, and I think we've mentioned this before, there really needs to be kind of a reboot of the nomenclature of all of these things, because it really is, you know, we're, we're still trying to shoehorn new things into, into the old new, names. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't well, yeah, really it's like works. breakage. You know, back in the yeah, day, right. there was this yeah. thing called breakage, and that was so it would stop record stores from the expensive routine of returning broken vinyl or whatever cassettes that, so they did a kind of a study with the retailers and they found that it was less than 1% came over broken. So they just credited these record store chains like tower, you know, warehouse, whatever with 1% of their purchases, they got a kind of a rebate and they called it breakage. But over the years, that term has evolved and it's, it has nothing to do with, what you think it does <laughs> or reality to be honest <laughs> at all uh so what he's saying is with all of these factors uh well all of these factors will be at play 
It is the first two factors that we had talked about, and those first two factors, of course, were the large one-off payments to ByteDance, Twitch, and Facebook, and licensing income from all those folks, uh, that are likely the most consequential. Media estimates that these new non-DSP streaming income sources accounted for between uh, 0.8 and $1.2 billion in 2021. Even at the lower end of these estimates, that revenue alone would have driven the same amount of growth in 2021 as all major label revenue growth combined in 2020. That, that is absolutely stunning. And yeah, because of that, you know, uh, Mark and uh, Midia predict that there are two potential scenarios. One, those upfront payments that you just mentioned, you know, for post-DSP uh, streaming partners exceed organic kind of midterm re- revenue, resulting in slower growth rates in 2022 and 2023. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two... Uh, post-DSP streaming partners meet or exceed expectations, making 2021 and 2022 look much like late 2000s and early 2010s did for DSP streaming, with minimum guarantees being more often than not. So he says, so by 2023, we should be able to tell whether 2021 was a spike or a pivot point. If I was a betting man, Mm -hmm. I would probably put money on the outlook being closer to two than to one, meaning to, uh, he's saying that it's going to be a pivot point rather than than a spike. Yeah. I don't know. Look, these are very smart people over there. I've read Mark's work for many years. More Mm -hmm. often than not, he's right. Um, so I would put my money on uh, what Midia and Mark Mulligan are saying. And there's a, a really great chart at the top of this. I wish I could show everybody. But look in your morning coffee, um, check out the article, and, and look at the chart that they uh, put. It's called Major Label Streaming Revenue Looks to Have Surged in 2021. And you can, you can see it visually, the trend yeah. um, uh, across the board. It's super interesting. It is, absolutely. So worth reading and worth talking about. Uh, but boy, I mean, just when you look at those numbers, and, you know, again, I, I, I still go back to, you know, does Warner Brothers Studios and Universal Studios, do they lament the day that they sold their music companies? <laughs> I, I'm guessing they might. But, you know, for a long time, I'm sure they were happy to just get those things off their backs. Who would have guessed now, that, you know, streaming... Well, let's back up. Back in the day, it was CDs, and they were taking such a hit, as we've talked about, you know, with illegal mm-hmm. file trading and so on. And then when downloads came around and you could uh, decouple an album, meaning just pick off your favorite tracks, they, this business didn't look that attractive to them. No. So no, you've always not. said that and you've always been right. <laughs> well, I just, it makes me think about that because they couldn't wait to get rid of them and, and fast, you know, and... And so here we are. It's it's been it's wow. a new day, and that is pretty wild. So Look at it, man. well, let's jump over to the next story, yeah. Jay. Uh, this is from Billboard. Your good friend Lucian Grange's memo to UMG staff: big hits, good deeds, and embracing change. Yeah, this it's is a fairly by, lengthy uh, memo. Yeah, this was written by Dan Rise uh, for Billboard, mm-hmm. and I find this fascinating, probably more so than most people on the planet, because I remember working for Universal for you know eighteen years or so. And annually, we would get these uh, messages uh, from the CEO. And, you know, I did another five years with Warner Music Group, and it wasn't different there. And I loved these, uh, I hate to say pep talk, but it was just a a way of saying, 
you know, like, look, we appreciate your hard work. We should be proud of what we're doing. And here's what we're doing. And what I love about Lucian Grange's memo is it focuses a lot of, on things that you wouldn't think it would, you know, philanthropic things. And mm-hmm. um, just he's so proud of his team for kind of powering through uh, COVID and all of the adversity. But, I mean, it's Universal Music Group. I mean, come on. You know, like, they, they were a beast and, you know, most of the top, you know, I think it was four of the top five songs of the year were, you know, Universal Music Group. Um, and it, it starts off the article, you know, by, by saying kind of what I just said. But you have to remember, you know, UMG is a standalone uh, public company now for the first time in history. And that his yeah. note briefly touches on that milestone. But instead, he's focusing on those philanthropic efforts, you know, that I mentioned, like Music Cares, Help uh, Musicians UK, the Music Health Alliance and Copilot, as well as UMG's own kind of homegrown uh, programs like All Together Now Foundation, Task Force for uh, Meaningful Change, among others. So they have so much to be proud of. And um, you read this this note, this letter, and as you mentioned, it's not a short letter. This is a... <laughs> it's not a short letter. You start no. digging into it and you're like, yeah, I may have to go get another cup of coffee. This is going to take me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, and he so he goes through a lot of that stuff, but, but kind of as, it, as he wraps it up at the end, he says, worldwide success like this doesn't just happen. Artists today have more opportunities and choices than ever before in terms than ever before in terms of how they release their music and with whom they partner to develop their careers. At the same time, it's harder than ever for artists to break through the noise. He uses the number of 60,000 songs being added to Spotify every day. You and I By the way, about um, it. somewhere between yeah, 60 and 70. Right? That's right. And Glenn Peoples from Billboard is looking into that because we've seen it in print as 70,000, nearly 70,000 tracks uploaded every day. Lucian says 60 in this article. Let's not let facts get in the way of a good story. Go ahead. There you go. But it's a lot of numbers. He says, yet this past year, our results demonstrated once again that partnering with UMG dramatically increases the odds for artists in countries around the world to break through and also achieve global success. What I found interesting about this is he met, the way he uses that the phrase partner with UMG, not get signed by UMG, not... Yeah, it's know, like a not, collaboration, not, like a joint venture, right. like a partnership. And that's the way it should be. You know, he states that for our artists, success is not limited to recording music and music publishing. We built a continuum of services and resources in merchandise, brand management, sponsorships, live, e-commerce, and film and television, just to name a few. That's quite a few. Uh, that yes, enable us to partner with artists at any stage of their career. And I think that's key. And and here's the part that I really appreciated. And you can tell that he's been around, and this isn't some uh, you know executive from Procter & Gamble that came over to run a music company. Uh, <laughs> Lucian says, I've experienced many transformational shifts over the course of my career. Changes in format from vinyl to cassette to CD, partnering with Apple on downloading, championing the launch of Spotify streaming service, forging the industry's first partnership with Facebook to open social media. Change is constant, yet through all these twists and turns, by adapting our business models, promoting competition, and creating healthier ecosystem for music and artists, we've never resisted change. We've embraced it. So what you read, coupled with this, to me, that's a pretty strong statement. Yeah. Um 
and one of the other things that's interesting is is they they, they he, go, he rolls through a lot of things that are happening around the world, and of course it is an international music business and growing outside of, of the U.S. So he does mention that. He said, it, and he and he kind of goes on to say, he's in in country after country, we are seeing record royalty outflows to recording artists and songwriters. That's interesting. Uh, mm. In fact, UMG's investment in artists has never been higher, and that's critical because for us, music, something to which we have all dedicated our lives, is the most vital form of creative human expression, an art and a gift to be cherished and nurtured. So seeing record royalty outflows, uh, yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to agree with that. Um, well, you got to give them an A for effort, and I tell you this: That's this right. again. I'm a, I hate calling it a pep talk, but man, I I got inspired reading some of this. I really did. It sounds corny. Um, yeah, but that's the stuff that really you know excites me. You know, investing in artist development and you know working smarter. You know, not necessarily harder. Uh, a few before we move on, I wanted to just touch on a few of these highlights because this is pretty impressive. And I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to read a few. Um, but some of the highlights that UMG had for um, 2021, you know, on Spotify, they had four of the top five global artists with Taylor Swift, BTS, Drake, and Justin Bieber. Bieber, <laughs> a believer. Easy for you to say. Hey, tell me about it. Uh, Olivia Rodrigo had the most streamed song with Driver's License and the most streamed album with Sour. Okay, that's pretty impressive. Apple Music mm -hmm. named the weekend Global Artist of the Year. You know, Billboard's year-end charts showed UMG had eight of the top 10 artists. I mean, that's, that's incredible, right? Uh, is. UMPG, really is. Uh, you know, the publishing group had four of the five top 100 songs in Billboard's year end chart. So this is, I mean, these guys are the big dogs, you know, this is, yeah. they play NFL football and they do it very well. Yes. Uh, you know, we at ADA, uh, they're doing some great things, you know, the, uh, um, there's so many other, you know, competitors out there that are doing great things, but the big dog on campus is is UMG. And I loved, you know, kind of seeing underneath the hood a little bit and seeing that memo sent from Lucian to employees to basically tell them, look, um, you should be proud of everything you accomplished, um, but we're not done yet. He says, when you step back and consider what we've assembled, our artists, our, le our leaders, our networks, our expertise, our capital, our global footprint, our vast catalog of songs and recordings, the conclusion you can reach is unmistakable. Universal music is truly a category of one. Change may be inevitable, but no matter what may come our way this year or any other year after, we will remain laser focused on our core mission, which will never change, to create exciting commercial and creative opportunities for artists to bring their music to the world. Yeah, well, I would go. argue with that category of one. Um, they're, they're doing very well and they're leading the pack yes. today, but you and I, in our careers, remember it wasn't that long ago when Warner music group, you know, when I was working at tower records, they were so far ahead of everybody else. And mm -hmm. universal then was called MCA distribution and people would joke. It was music cemetery of America Absolutely. and they became uni distribution. And then all of a sudden they bought Geffen when everybody thought that was going over to capital EMI. Now they're a player. Then they got Interscope. And then things got bigger and bigger, and now it's Universal Music Group. But, you know, I don't know about the Category 1. I think they're doing very well, and they just killed it this last year. But a little humility. 
Well, then he says Lucian. Then he says, of course, at the end he says P.S. and and I'm pretty stoked that I earned half a billion dollars this year in the stock. Trade, he did so. not say. You take that back. He, oh, he didn't say that. I'm sorry, he did not. But uh, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking the whole way through. It's like, yeah, my friend, you did okay this year, <laughs> and that's and to be honest, you know, that is a little. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's I, a whole uh, other discussion about, you know, executive salaries and people complain that, you know, he made more money than, you know, like Elton John did or these artists that, you know, he's uh, exploiting. And I mean that in the best possible way. But I also believe in supply and demand. And I believe that if you're a uh, an executive for a company and you're tasked with a certain amount of growth and you hit that growth, you know, you should be rewarded for that because that rising tide lifted a heck of a lot of boats. So we won't get into that argument right now because it's a deeper discussion. But uh, fascinating peek into a memo from Lucian Grains at uh, Universal Music Group uh, to the employees there. Yes. And as I'm sure you do, I wish I was there this year for bonus, for the bonuses, for the bonus pool. <laughs> I would have been jumping in that bonus pool I would have, with, with, uh, yeah. with vigor and excitement. Yes. So let's move on to the next story, Jay. This from Media, another media story. Uh, how relevant are awards in the age of Spotify rap? I love this story. And I, it really resonated with me. And I had to read it a couple of times because, you know, uh, Keith Jopling wrote it, and, and, and I know Keith. He's, he's such a great guy and such a great curator. And as we mentioned a little earlier, he's got this podcast series called The Song Sommelier. And if you haven't seen it, look it up on your DSP of choice. This isn't just somebody making playlists. Like, he's got an artist making the covers. And this he does the curation and then talks about it. And it's just, they're phenomenal. Some of the best playlists yes. that I've ever listened to. So... Highly recommend Keith Jopling's Song Sommelier. But this piece, again, he, he wrote it for uh, Midia, which is a second uh, you know, piece we're covering this week on Midia. And I, it really resonated with me about these, like Spotify wrapped, and I never thought of it in terms of uh, a scorecard for mm -hmm. artists, like maybe award shows are, but... It kind of is, you know, and, and as Keith points out, every awards brand in the entertainment business today is either in the throes of an identity crisis or mired in controversy. And he's right. You know, even if they are not, they're certainly facing the ex existential question about why they exist. Ouch. <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it for me, Keith. Wow. What are you really saying here? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he said, one of the overwhelming cultural challenges is that most awards are designed to celebrate mainstream success, to make nominees and winners the talk of the town. Yet the in the streaming era, the mainstream has itself become just another niche. Besides, the office of 2022 has no water cooler around which to discuss water cooler moments. Isn't that great? <laughs> which is true. It's a it, great line. It exactly. is. You know, and Nobody, the nobody's in the office. There's no water cooler moments. And... You know, he says some of the awards um, are more about the ceremony and the televised coverage than much else. And yeah. I love watching award shows, and I'll continue to do that, but he's not wrong. No, 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 absolutely not. I will say, though, and we talked about this before, I thought last year's Grammy uh, show was fantastic. Fantastic. One of my favorites, if not my all-time favorite. My all-time favorite. And I wasn't expecting Absolutely. that because we thought it was going to be a train wreck because it's it was in the height of COVID at the beginning, 
Everybody mm-hmm. was on lockdown, and and for those who didn't see it, it was kind of almost like an in the round situation where some of these yeah. top nominated artists, like you know Billie Eilish and Hyam, and you know just some of these really great artists, were kind of watching each other perform. And I'd never seen anything like it, and I hope they continue doing that because it was, it was like you said, it was just one of the best. Absolutely. And he mentioned he said, the trouble is that the, the vast majority of awards shows, from the Brits to the Grammys to, to the BAFTAs and even the Oscars, are seeing declining TV audiences. Yes, some viewing has migrated online, but the content remains designed for broadcast. Over time, the true purpose of the awards themselves seem to have become separated from these glitzy TV shows. Indeed, one week after the awards ceremony, the whole thing is forgotten until next year. The only post-award discussions of any length are about the mistakes, or more specifically, the speeches by the award recipients (laughs) paying tribute to the other nominees. In a way, they are right. It's the other nominees that should have won. Yeah, Yeah, so... You're right, or he's right. There there is some of that. And this this article, by the way, is really kind of a follow-up piece to his piece about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, That was Mm -hmm. called How Should We Celebrate Fame in Today's Music Business? Um... And he he says that things are kind of stacking up against what he calls awards culture. And I wonder if we're in so many areas of life and the music industry, we're moving towards these kind of micro everything. And with Spotify wrapped, that's kind of a mini award show, if you think about it. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, he's right about everything. Um, And I don't know... But but like we said about the Grammys, I mean, if 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 you tuned into the Grammys, you I think you would have been blown away by how great that particular broadcast was. Yeah. So can, can all of these, whether it's the Golden Globes or the Brits or whomever, can they reboot it and kind of rethink what it is um, and make it relevant? But his point about you know it's kind of it, it happens and then it's almost immediately forgotten is. I would Super say that's true on. for most of the award shows that I've seen in the last few years, with the exception of uh, last year's Grammys. Um, mm-hmm. To me, that was that was memorable. Uh, another key point that that he makes here is that audience know audiences know what is big, what is best, and what is breaking through from streaming curation and programming. They don't really need award shows, maybe like they used to, to tell them, right? Because it used to be that you mm-hmm. would watch some of these award shows to kind of, you know, get up to speed on what was going on in the music industry. Um, he says that listening and viewing is so fragmented by streaming that the winners are going to resonate with a far smaller share of the audience than in the mass media age. Attention spans are short. And he's right. So the post-award yeah. spike in popularity or interest is going to be shorter and smaller. And I would argue this. We looked at a bunch of artists um, post-Grammys, uh, even one of our artists that won a Grammy and didn't see much of a spike like mm. you would see in years past. When Man, when you got a yeah. Grammy you know, five, ten years ago, you saw a pretty big spike depending on the category. He's right. It's it's less of a, a spike now. It's not such a yeah. surprise anymore because right now, people are already streaming Adele and Billie Eilish and some of you know Megan Thee Stallion, some of these big artists. They're already aware of it. There's so much more awareness across the board because of streaming. And also, when you look at streaming, there's a 
not on all DSPs, but certainly on Spotify, it'll say this has had you know 100 million streams right next to it. So you're kind of getting a sense of what the award winners or what the popularity is. Not to say that the Grammys are based on sales. They definitely are not. I'm a Grammy voter. I don't mm-hmm. vote on sales. I vote on merit. And especially yeah. there may be some su- surprises this year for Best New Artist because one of the artists has a very small social footprint and very, uh, compared to the others, very small sales streams and downloads. And she's a dark horse and may actually win it. And I think that's the way it should be. It should be based on merit and not just commerce. Yeah. He does mention the, the 2021 Grammys in here. And he, he mentioned that he said that there was a pleasure in watching artists do their thing for the pleasure of other artists. Yes. And he exactly. said it's stumbling across accidents like this that may save the Grammys and other awards. A new winning format has been discovered through serendipity and circumstance. But will the Grammys run with it? or revert to the old sprawling show with endless categories and too much pomp and ceremony. I don't know, but boy, I sure hope they do the right thing and 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 yeah. keep keep it going. Now he doesn't he he says and I was thinking this too, the Oscars is exceptional almost because it really is the mother of all award shows. It is. And it's a spectacle. Um, I miss Billy Crystal. I mean, those years of Billy Crystal to yeah. me, just I still remember him. They were just absolutely hilarious. And I'm not a big movie guy, but you know I do like watching that show just from the for the pomp and circumstance of it. Yes, but of course, you know now that we've got streaming and 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 things that are not being you know in 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 movie theaters, it's gonna that's a total monkey wrench for them too. So how they kind of <laughs> deal with it is is to be seen. You know, yeah. it's. it's I mean, the, the, and what we also forget about the Grammys was that was the, I think it was the first year that, what was his name, Ken, I can't remember Ken's name, the guy who did the, the Grammy production for decades, and, and he was not there for this last one. So it was New Blood, and it was pandemic-related. So there was a, a, a double whammy, which they completely, you know, used to their advantage. Challenge um, accepted. Challenge accepted. <laughs> there you go. And exactly. I love that Keith so. calls that out, and agrees with us because otherwise we'd have to, you know, disagree and that would just get ugly and hurtful for everyone involved. Uh, Keith Jopling, my friend, great job on, uh, on this piece. I always love reading his stuff and I can't stress enough. If you like music and you like a really good curation, check out the song Sommelier wherever playlists mm-hmm. are sold. I wonder how much, how long it takes him to put one of those episodes it's together. It's gotta be, it's gotta be a lot um, because his playlists are very well curated, but then if you go to the website, there's also a synopsis of kind of, you know, how it got put together. Sometimes he's working mm-hmm. with uh, the artist, sometimes not. There's always kind of a good narrative that goes along with it. So it's not like me putting together my, you know, uh, my favorite songs by Neil Finn in a playlist, just throwing them in there willy nilly. You know, I remember working really closely with Gary Stewart, God rest his soul from uh, Apple mm-hmm. music and, <clears throat> We would we would work on playlists together just because we were friends and he'd call me up, you know, at night. And I remember, you know, sitting there at my desk and talking to him and kind of arguing in the best possible way about a a playlist. And he was the king of curators because he would say, Jay, this can't be your favorite songs by that artist. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It's a it's a playlist. And he's like, sure, it can. (laughs) He's like, no, it's got to be, you know, is the song still in their set list? I want to know that. Is it, has it ever been in a film 
or a TV show and, you know, any sync license. Is it a fan favorite? You know, do, do fans, you know, talk about it? Is it one of those that they, you know, would just throw a fit if it was out of the set list? Um, is it a cover tune and why, you know? So putting together a playlist, if you're a curator like um, Keith Chopling is, it's not just these are the best songs by XTC. This is like, yeah. these are why. And uh, the, the last thing I'll say on it, we can kind of wrap up here, is there, there, there was a really cool DSP, digital service provider. Um, uh, it was uh, Music Aficionado you know, kind of like those mm. magazines like Cigar Aficionado or whatever. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it it was one of my favorite things for a while because not only was it kind of a magazine-style DSP, so there were like these articles like Keith writes, so you're learning about why that those are, you know, um, I don't know, John Coltrane's best albums. And I thought that was cool. But the other thing they did, which I thought was brilliant is they would say, these are the, like the 30 best rock songs. And you'd go in there, and there wasn't one song that you recognized. Because it, right. it was just a trick to pull you in there and say, here's some unknown songs that you should, should listen to. And I'm hoping that you know now that there's like whatever it is, close to 70,000 tracks a day, half a million a week, there's 70 million in aggregate on these DSPs, I'm hoping that differentiation going forward will be that someone will really get into curation like Keith does, like Gary mm -hmm. Stewart did. Um, Cause I mean, look, they're all doing personalized playlists and that that's all great, but I'm talking about differentiating themselves where there's like maybe a story that goes along with these playlists and really more of a deeper immersive experience. Um, that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping. A girl and can that's dream. The magic of, yeah. That's the <laughs> it's a magic of music without a doubt. But on that note, Jay, we must wrap up episode 75. 75. It goes so fast. Goes so fast. I know. Exactly. Can you believe Big it? Thanks to I cannot believe it because it's uh it's just been so fun though. You know, we, I'm so appreciative <laughs> that people like to listen in to us, but we've been doing this for, for since we've known each other that's right. and it's just fun to record it and send it out to the world and have people get back to us and uh, say how much they enjoy the, the best. show. It's just absolutely it's, so it's just wonderful. We can't uh, thank you all enough. And big thanks to our sponsors, including Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Thank you very they much. They rock our world. Absolutely. And so, Jay, let us say au revoir. Can you sing that song at the end of, what was that? Uh, Good night, sleep tight, and pleasant dreams to you. Oh. Who, who was that? What show was that? Was it Carol Burnett? Carol yeah. Burnett yes. did the thing, you know, I'm so glad we had this time together. Just oh, that's right. Yeah, but there's... She'd tug on her ear, you know. That's right. We need to that's come up with a little with... jingle for the end of the show, you know? <laughs> we do. That's right. A little, a little corny jingle. There you go. <laughs> so uh, on behalf of Jay Gilbert and myself, thanks for listening in, folks. We'll see you next week for episode 76 on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.